and welcome to the Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps on one of our much-appreciated radio syndicate partners, or on the Green Majority podcast. I am David Hostetter, and we have Stefan Hostetter, Lauren Latour, and Amara Passan on this week's episode. But first, a brief intro. The COVID crisis may be causing some of us to step back and look at what's important, like making sure tedious essential work is compensated properly, or sustaining the ecosystems that allow for life on Earth, but it's also seeing others double down on their worst impulses, like committing the worst mass shooting to ever happen in this country, or Canadian oil lobbyists trying to use COVID to convince the government to cancel climate change legislation and reject indigenous rights, and then to let them hide their future lobbying efforts from public scrutiny. Or Donald Trump using COVID to increase his authoritarian grip, announcing an end to all immigration, and cheering on alt-right rallies where assault-rifle-wielding militias are decrying the lockdown measures that remain the best weapon against the spread of the infection. We will be talking with Lauren Latour shortly about the Canadian government's relationship with the oil lobby, and then we will be speaking with Amara Passan of 350.org about what should be an environmentally and socially just recovery coming out of the pandemic. But first, in light of everything... I want to turn to a conversation recorded in 1971 for the television program Soul between James Baldwin and Nikki Giovanni, because even though it is almost 50 years old, its spirit of resistance remains relevant for us today. At some point in the two-hour discussion, Giovanni says, quote, My theory is that the world divides into intelligent and dumb, weak and strong, which is awful. It's awful for me to say things like that but there's so many stupid people. To which Baldwin responds, quote, It divides not so much between the stupid and the bright, because most bright people that I've encountered, perhaps not most, but many, are wicked, really wicked. I think it divides between people who have a certain kind of daring and the people who don't. And the daring is involved with the price you're prepared to pay for your life. Because then you may have been born stupid, But if you're willing to live and take your chances on living, you become very bright. He goes on to say, What you have to do is focus on what is essential, and not be sidetracked by very disturbing details. What Giovanni says next reminded me of Steve Bannon's recent appearance on the popular Red Scare podcast, in which he said that millennials are the next great generation that is going to lead us out of the darkness which can only seem to me like an attempt to use our narcissism against us and recruit millennials to his fascist program, flattering us into dystopia. Giovanni says, regarding what she sees as the need for individuals, quote, There's so many young kids who want to believe. I teach school, and when I look at my various classes and I see those hopeful little faces, and I know that they are just as eager to become fascists as anything else, what they want is to believe— then I feel an obligation to say, okay, try believing in yourself. To which Baldwin replies, quote, most people accept, without very much question, the assumptions that they're given. The conversation is, of course, about race and how to survive as a black person in the 70s in America. But the way it's discussed still sheds light on what's happening now, especially as race and colonialism relate to the climate and ecological crisis. So Baldwin later says, speaking, remember, in 1971, quote, Until this century begins to apprehend the experience out of which a Lena Horne comes, for example, or an Ethel Waters, 
or you, Nikki Giovanni, or Paul Robeson, or Aretha Franklin, or Ray Charles. White people don't know what that comes out of. They have no metaphor in their experience for it, or the metaphor in their own experience is so deeply buried and so frightening. The reason people think it's important to be white is that they think it's important not to be black. They think it's important to be white because being white means you are civilized, and being black means you're not civilized. And it has yet to be apprehended in any way whatever that in fact I, James Baldwin, would not be able to walk the streets or even look at you, or you at me, or do whatever we do in our terrible days, day to day, if we were not civilized. We represent a civilization. I don't mean merely the African civilization or any civilization whatever. I mean a sense of life, which is the only thing that civilizes anybody, which, for mercantile or commercial reasons, to put it a little bit too simply, the rise of Europe attempted to destroy. I say attempted to destroy because it did not in fact destroy it. It dispersed it, and under that pressure it began to become something else. And what it comes to is that I am civilized in a way that Englishmen are not, because I have had to depend on a principle which Europeans have learned to distrust. Later in his life, Baldwin said at the National Press Club that the European worldview is obsolete. But listen to what he said in 1971. What's required for civilization has been systematically undercut for commercial reasons. To make money, we Europeans have throttled not only the human spirit needed to sustain civil cooperation, but also the non-human spirit needed to sustain life. Significantly, Baldwin calls the former a sense of life, of shared life, of being able to recognize each other as unlimited by our economic relations or whatever category that we might assert between us. The Marxists have a similar critique of the way capitalism has blurred and undermined real social relations by putting up the deadening assumptions that cause the human being to disappear behind the cashier. And so, because we're in some serious hard times, with rampant economic oppression and the threat of global ecosystem failure, the failure of the conditions for life on Earth, I'll end with a quote from Cornell West talking about Baldwin, when he said in 2017, quote, It's real. It's here. Neo-fascism is unfolding before our very eyes, undermining the sources of opposition, be it press, be it courts, be it universities, feeling as if it's inevitable that you have to move in a right-wing, populist, xenophobic, nationalist, neo-fascist direction. When asked what young people are hearing in Baldwin today, West said, quote, they're hearing someone who refused to allow his fire to be dampened by overwhelming bleakness and darkness. That's a beautiful thing. And I'm highly suspicious of discourses of hope. I think that's too abstract. The question's not having hope. The question is being a hope. Having hope is still too detached, too spectatorial. You gotta be a participant. You gotta be an agent. Courageous, bearing witness, regardless of what the circumstances is, because you're choosing to be a person of integrity, to the best of your ability, before the worms get your body. And we are now joined by the illustrious Lauren Latour from Ottawa. And uh, we're going to discuss the Canadian Association of Petroleum producers now. So uh, Environmental Defense uh, released a secret memo 
last week that was sent to the federal government on the 27th of March by Canada's premier fossil fuel lobby group, the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers, or CAP, in which they try to use the COVID crisis to roll back a huge list of environmental efforts that are getting in the way of their profits. The memo reads in part, quote, In addition to the flexibility in existing regulations, CAP also recommends that, during this time of crisis, governments adopt a do-no-harm principle with respect to regulations and the costs they impose on industry. This principle will also be crucial in the longer term in planning for economic recovery. The memo then goes on to list a series of demands from CAP, which are outlined in the original environmental defense release. They are as follows. Don't finalize the clean fuel standard, which is being developed to reduce carbon emissions and air pollution from vehicle traffic. Delay federal methane regulations, or let weak provincial regulations take their place, thus increasing the amount of this powerful greenhouse gas and associated poisonous toxins going into the atmosphere. Cancel plans to implement the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, or UNDRIP, further delaying Indigenous peoples from having their full rights recognized. Cancel government commitments to reform the Canadian Environmental Protection Act, putting Canadians at ongoing risk from toxic chemicals. Pause the planned increase to the federal carbon price. Stop moving forward with any new climate policies. Indefinitely exempt in situ oil sands mining and exploration drilling projects from undergoing federal impact review, and exempt from reporting their lobbying activities to achieve these goals. Environmental Defense notes that CAP has logged 29 separate meetings with 42 senior federal officials from just March 12th to the 31st. Going forward, they want this evidence to stay hidden from the Canadian public. Yeah. So uh, uh, this is unbelievable uh, in many ways. Uh, but th- I think the first thing, the first piece I wrote is the do no harm. To use do no harm in this context is perhaps one of the more unreasonable and despicable uses of that term I have ever seen. I didn't even think it was mad to be mad at the principle. I didn't think it was possible to be mad at that principle. And yet here we are. Uh, But to you, Lauren. Yeah. um, When I first sort of heard this story, I don't think I really processed it because I was just like, oh, yeah, cat, bad, blah, 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 blah. And then I sort of I was reading a bit about it and, and I sort of realized how sinister it was. And, and again, sort of before I really dug into these these different points that this environmental defense press release lays out, I was sort of it was like, man, this is this is like. It's like a, an old timey cartoon fox trying to get in the hen house. And then the more I read of the principles, it was like, oh no, this is like the fox going up to the farmer and being like, hey, can I have those chickens, please? Also, don't tell anybody I asked for these chickens. Like, specifically, like, I know we're going to go through these points individually, but like, the one calling for them to cancel implementation of UNDRIP, like, that's, that's straight up evil. Like that's not, that can't be construed as like, they're looking, it's, it's, it's about economics or it's about progress or it's about jobs or providing for everyday people. It's like, no, like that's, that's straight up evil. That's like ninth circle Dante is writing about you stuff that's going on. It's, 
Yeah, this is yeah. unbelievable. And then I know, I, again, I know we're going to go through these points, but then the one about like exempt in situ oil sands mining and, ex, um, and exploration drilling projects, from what I understand, in situ mining is already exempt from federal um, impact review. But like, but anyway, we're going to dig into this. This yeah. is mind boggling. Yeah, it's, uh, but I'm, I honestly, I actually had a similar response you did, which was at first I read it and I was like, yeah, you know, they want bad things. And then I had, then I saw a couple of these people pulling out particular pieces of it. And I was like, you asked for what? You know, like, 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 you know, the, the first one, if we're going through the first one is, you know, don't finalize the clean fuel standard, uh, which is being developed to reduce carbon emissions and air pollution for vehicle traffic. That's like not great, but like a very presumed position, I would guess they have, you know, like I'm not out here presuming they want better, cleaner fuel. No, it's it's pretty benign. It's pretty white bread. It's pretty like par for the course. For cap. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And the second one, similar kind of thing, you know, like the delaying the federal methane regulations again, like they're only asking for a delay, which I guess is something. Um, and 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 yet, you know, methane obviously is, is very important. And as we have covered in previous episodes, the actual and methane emissions are probably much higher than they're even reporting. So this actually probably is actually more important than you give it credit to. But at the same time, again, kind of something you sort of presumed that they would want. You know, and 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 something that you could sort of be like, look, we're all busy. We don't have time to deal with this right now. And you could see the government being like, okay, fine, we'll push it back six months or something. And and I and I don't think that would make the story that has that that this has become. Uh, then we get to the one that you highlighted, the third one, which is you know canceling UNDRIP. Which are you kidding? Like, especially again, not to go back to this, but especially from a standpoint of do no harm. You're you're deciding to do no harm to oil companies' profits straight up is basically what you're admitting is in direct violation of UNDRIP. Is that what you're saying? What you're saying is that you want UNDRIP canceled because you are worried that it will cancel profits, which means you are profiting off exploiting indigenous people. Like if you can work backwards to this pretty quickly and it's just unreal. Yeah, that's one of those ones where it's like, Wow. I, I, I like, you know, that that's theoretically kind of always probably where their minds have been going, but it's like, you put that in writing and you put that in writing and you sent it out to not one, but like several ministers of parliament and, and the prime minister, like, yeah, the, the fact that the fact that they put it in writing, that it is so blatant. And, and I know people are probably going to be annoyed. They're like, you've just been going on for 10 minutes now about how unbelievable it is. But like, really take a second, let it sink in, understand that this is what these millionaires in charge of these companies are asking for what these lobbyists went into meetings with something like what 30 times in the month of March after the COVID emergency was declared, and this is the point that you wanted to take into a lobbying meeting with a federal official, that's and, bananas. Well, and, and it was used under the guise of a response to COVID. They were like, hey, because of COVID, now we shouldn't have to respect the rights of people. That was this, that's the position we're talking about here. You know, and, and I think it's useful or valuable to think about if this was any other lobbying group, how you would respond. Like if you discovered that Loblaws had decided that they did not want Undrip to be penciled, you would wonder what Loblaws was doing. It would cause some very serious concerns about what they are doing. And again, Loblaws, not great, doing a lot of bad things. Stole us, stole our money straight up. Uh, but but you understand the, perp the point here. It's yeah, I, it's too much. 
Yeah. Um, if it were any other industry, they would be laughed out of the room if these yeah. things were proposed. But yeah. there's a level of weight that CAP carries. They're the single largest lobbying body for the oil and gas industry in this country. They carry a lot of political weight and clout, and they hold a lot of very important relationships. And normally, when they say jump to a certain degree, the government in the past says how high. So, so the fact that, that they came forward with these insane requests and the government turned around and said no is, is actually somewhat admirable. I know we don't often laud the liberal government on this yeah. show, but like what they pulled out last week, especially given what we heard they were going to be doing several weeks prior, when again, we were on air ranting for half an hour about the $30 billion or whatever, when this is what they decided to come out with instead, this plan for $2 billion in job creation, although we can definitely talk about it later. There are some flaws there. Yeah. It is still impressive. Yeah, it's still, yeah, exactly. Like the, 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 it is still the money's at least going to things that will make the world better. Um, even if it's bailing out, even if it is, you know, allowing them to pr- publicize the, the, the costs, which it is, it is a $2 billion given to these companies that should be doing this anyways, for sure. But it's like, it is sad, but true that we're happy that they're not literally just giving them money to, so they have more money. Like that's true. Um, okay. So moving forward, uh, cancel government commitments to reform the Canadian Environmental Protection Act, putting Canadians, uh, like, this was the act that was gutted by Harper. And honestly, to me, like, I know they've done, I think they've done some rebuilding in the first four years of this, but like the fact that it's still nowhere where it was, even, you know, before Harper totally, totally ripped it apart. So like, it's, it's still, you know, it needs some serious work. And so it, like, this is like trying to get you back to, you know, the, the days where we basically, the federal government had no control over anything. Well, yeah, I mean, that's what it's asking for. Jumping ahead to that, again, that point, again, indefinitely exempt in situ oil sands mining and exploration drilling projects from undergoing federal impact review. That, that, like, that is what it's saying between that and, and the call to, to suspend any reformation of SEPA or the Canadian Environmental Protection Act. It's like, yeah, it's, it's asking the government to step the, um, you can't swear on air, to step <laughs> back from, from oil and gas production anyway. Yeah. No, yeah, and 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 well, and like the, one of the interesting things about Harper uh, when he was doing it was that a big thing he was trying to do was actually just remove the ability for the federal government to impose its will, and and that's what the, a lot of this is. Like this is once again trying to basically be like, you know, even the even the piece of of going back up to the methane one where they allow potentially allowed the idea of the provincial regulations to come in place. That's basically being like, let Jason Kenny decide how much methane we should be allowed to to emit. Uh, which, you know, is a abdication of responsibility from the federal government. And, and you know, you see it again in the, in, in the ask to pause the plan of the increase of the federal pri- carbon price. You know, like that's once again a example of, uh, of them asking the federal government to, you know, do less so that they can make more money. Straight up. And that one is like, what's interesting with that one, that one's huge. Like that's like, that's not just them. That would influence all of Canada and like in a way, like that's not, you know, it's not like some of these other ones are very specifically for them, but this is sort of like, Hey, let's just make it worse for everybody. Yeah, no, that, that is a huge backpedal. And then the one below that stop moving forward with any new climate policies. It's like, 
no, like, A, okay, things are already suspended. Parliament already isn't meeting to talk about anything beyond COVID emergency response right now. So like, it seems unnecessary to ask for something like this right now, because already new, any new policy being introduced is slowed down, let alone climate policy. But it's like, no, no, that's, that's ridiculous. Don't ask for something. Again, it's so blatant. Yeah. Um, and, and we were joking about this word before we, before we turned on the microphones, but like the audacity of these <laughs> demands is truly confounding. Yeah. And it's like, it, it's one of those things where I, you, I'm left wondering, you know, or trying to balance between like, was the goal to set the bar so high that even, that even coming way lower than that is like still good, but like, which is like a very un- dishonest way of dealing with this kind of thing like but like it does yet and yet what's interesting is that so much of the messaging from these companies whenever we're not dealing in these sort of back channels is no we really care about climate change we're really all about responding about these things we really want to do stuff and then to in the back channel release this kind of memo flies directly in the face of that it's it's point blank clear that you like if you if you are asking to stop all new climate policies then you are putting yourself ahead of everything else and that's the only way to read this yeah it's it's really hard it's like i often try to to like humanize people you know what i mean to try mm -hmm. to think of the fact that like yes every every oil and gas executive is still is still a parent is still a child they're still human but it's really really hard to humanize the people who wrote this and to humanize the people who demanded this because yeah it's they're so clearly putting themselves above everybody else putting themselves above anybody who would be benefited by stronger climate policy which is everybody on the planet putting themselves above indigenous people and the rights to the land that they hold it's um yeah, I know. And, and you're right. Maybe it is that sort of logic that like when you were a kid, you'd be like, hey, mom, can I st stay out till one? So she would come back and be like, no, but you can stay out till 11. Like maybe it's maybe that's the logic behind it. But also the other thing that this makes me wonder is like, what have they been asking for up until now? Like, right. is this always the language they've used? Is this always how they've talked in back channels? Or, or did they like, did they hire some new like young buck lobbyist and they were like, I'm going to show them with this briefing note. Like yeah, how did, yeah, how did yeah, this come about? Yeah. 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 Here's this. Oh, there's a, there's a crisis going on. Now is the time to get whatever we like. And the, the, the thing the, the last piece that gets to me, um, which is, you know, conveniently the last point on this list is that like, it's. It's one like you can see the response to this being like, look, this is normal. This is like industry association pushing for things that an industry that, that that would benefit an industry totally normal and within the within fair game. And then they come up with the last request, which is to basically say, but you can't. We don't want anyone to know we're doing this. Like to ask to your exempt reporting their lobbying activities to achieve these goals. That is. That's straight up to saying, we know no one will like this, so don't tell anyone. Yeah, it's like very like mafia mob boss in a movie from the 40s. Just like, you better keep your mouth shut, see? Like it, um, it, it, it actually, I, I don't even, again, it's just, it's, it's a request. It's, it's a set of recommendations or demands, but it's like, I don't, like, they're asking for laws to be broken and bent for them. Like, 
everyone else across the country who engages in lobbying efforts has to register. It's a pain in the butt. I do it myself sometimes for work purposes. Like, in, in what world do you think you're going to be allowed to be exempted from that? A, just, just as anyone, nobody is exempted from that, let alone you, the largest, most powerful lobbying body we have in this country. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's it, exactly. It's it's either saying that no one should get should be required to admit that they're begging for things right now, um which is bad, or they're saying, you know, give us special treatment because we're powerful. Like it's it's that's the only like, like what's we, interesting about this whole thing is it's so hard to read anything but self-interested uh, you know, complete abdication of any real rules into this. Like, it's so hard to realize that any humanity into these lists of demands that, that are not just selfish, let us destroy the planet and shut up about it. Like, that's all I get from this. And, and, and the other thing I get from this is that it's like a Hail Mary pass, but it just seems to come at such an odd time because a request like that to exempt, um, to exempt them from, from lobbying reporting um, is, is that it's like, that, that's a big ask that would make sense if it were like, again, it's coming from a very, very powerful entity, but they're not going to be powerful for that much longer. Um, all we've seen this week is that the oil and gas industry is gutted, is hemorrhaging money, oil, um, I don't think specifically Western Select, so like not Canadian oil, but American oil was, was like negative $37 a barrel. It's like, this is this is not the kind of ask that you should be going to the federal government for when you're going to be in the poorhouse in in a matter of weeks or months once this stuff starts like coming in and like actually like manifesting in real dollars as opposed to stock market make believe money. Yeah. Like yeah. you need to like humble yourself, babe, cuz <laughs> like this you're 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 still high up on your horse here and you have no right to be. And now we are turning to an interview Stefan recently conducted with Amara Passan of 350.org. Uh, the first question he asked her was how the climate movement, how 350 within the climate movement, is currently viewing this crisis. Internally at 350, we've been talking about three phases respond, repair, rebuild. It's kind of an adaptation of the way that the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives has been talking about the moment that we're in. But basically, right now, we're in this emergency response phase. So the big things that we need to be paying attention to right now are whether people are being taken care of, whether communities are being taken care of. We also need to be watching for uh, whether and how not weather, definitely how corporations like the fossil, <laughs> that are in the fossil fuel industry are trying to use this moment to meet their own ends. Um, so we've, we've seen responses on both of these fronts already, right? There's mutual aid efforts and community responses uh, popping up everywhere. Um, and there are tons and tons of campaigns that have both um, helped people meet their own needs and also expand government support. And then at the same time, there's there's public outrage over the possibility of a massive fossil fuel bailout um and and that outrage has actually so far anyway pushed back on some of uh big oil's biggest asks uh from the federal government 
So that's that's the current moment. But um, as we see or, or as we move forward and social distancing is lifted, um, we're we're looking to pay attention to this moment of repair and reconstruction where the government, likely through the budget um, that the pandemic delayed, uh, starts rolling out this massive economic recovery package. Um, so that's kind of the next fight that we're thinking about. Um, and we have to make sure that that uh, follows the principles of a just recovery and protects people's health, takes care of workers, people, communities, um, helps us rise to, to the climate crisis. And um, that's, that's kind of the precursor to a, a potential moment of massive transformative change. Cool. All right. Uh, so let's actually try to use those three uh, stages maybe as a, as a way to work through this. Um, so, so the first is sort of this, this responding and trying to be, uh, ensure that everyone is taken care of, care of as much as possible. And you mentioned sort of these, creating these communities of care, um, but, but how else are, are you seeing that happen? How are, how are people sort of coming around to create these communities? So at the, at the hyper-local level, there are neighborhood pods that are popping up, which are basically these groups of five to 30 people who are organizing to make sure that each other's needs are met in a, a hyper-local geographic community. So on a block, in an apartment building. Um, there are also these mutual aid networks that are quite big um, popping up. Uh, some of them are called caremongering groups. And then lots and lots of groups are running campaigns uh, to, to make sure that um, people's needs are met through a uh, government response as well. Cool. Um, yeah, and, and, and honestly, the, the, I'm, man, that's funny. I was talking to, to, to Dave the other day about the, con the term caremongering. And, and do you happen to know where it came from? Like, is it from the, is, is it from the Facebook group? Is there another place that it came out of? It's happened now. I, I don't know the person's name off the top of my head, um, but it's definitely, like, their name is definitely easy to find. Uh, but one of the founders of the original Toronto Caremongering Facebook group um, coined the term as a response uh, okay. to caremongering. All right. But so we just totally look it up, because it's so important to know the origins of these things. Ah, Mita Hands. Yeah. Um, the first group was set up, uh, so the first caremongering group was set up by Mita Hands, or Hans probably, with the help of Valentina Harper and others. Valentina explained the meaning behind the name. Scaremongering is a big problem, she tells the BBC. Uh, we wanted to switch that around and get people to connect on a positive level, to connect with each other. So why do you think it's important, like, it, like this is, I feel like this is sort of a, you know, like a, a leading question in some ways, but um, the, the, the environmental movement, you know, um, is, you know, like, Theoretically, responding in a caremongering ways is is not would not have been traditionally what you'd sort of see you know big NGOs doing in the environmental movement, say in the nineties. That, that you know their their response to other crises was not to start to start actually being on the ground helping. Um, but but clearly this is this is the moment that we live in now really sees that that, that that this is part of everything that it's all connected. And so do you, why do you see caremongering as a part of the necessity and the response uh, from the environmental movement? Or just for maybe, maybe you just think it's from humans in general, and so all of us are just humans. Maybe that's the answer. Yeah, I don't know if the environmental movement's approach has been different than any other mm. movement's approach, aside from drawing the links to uh, like the, the intersecting crises and the fact that in responding to this crisis, we can't make another one worse. So um, at, at, in this moment where there's a 
there are massive economic recovery packages and bailouts being um, put in place, making sure that they're done in a way that actually builds resilience for the climate crisis. I think that's where the link is. But in terms of how uh, mutual aid and caremongering is connected to this moment, part of what's happened, so people are coming together across the country to respond and to be there for each other. But part of what happens in a crisis is that oppression is unmasked. So the pandemic has made it so clear just how many people are falling through the cracks of our broken systems. And there are all of these people, like there are people who've been um, engaging in mutual aid in order to survive forever. Uh, and there are also people who are being activated for the very first time because of the moment that we're in. Um, and, and that could um, turn them into a new generation of, of organizers, right? Because when you're, when you're engaging in mutual aid and when you're organizing to meet um, others' needs, you end up hearing a lot of stories. Like I've heard so many stories from people on my street um, who are falling through the cracks, who are like one sick day away from losing their jobs, who are one paycheck away from um, not being able to afford rent. And so part of, part of our work, I think, in fighting for a just recovery um, is, is drawing those connections. I was looking right before this, this interview, I was looking at some of the mutual aid groups and um, community support networks that have put out political demands as a response. And so the Toronto Mutual Aid um, group, uh, which spun out of um, the, the original Caremongering Facebook group, and then there's a group in Vancouver called Coming Together. Um, they've already put out political demands. And there's a section in the preamble of the Vancouver group that says, let's applaud our essential workers and then organize to make sure that no worker is forced to endure unsafe conditions. Let's help each other cover rent and then organize to ensure housing for all. And so I, I think that's the role um, that many of us can be playing, drawing those connections, using the megaphones we have access to, to bridge from meeting each other's immediate needs um, through these beautiful acts of solidarity to actually um, organizing politically to make sure that the recovery from here is, is a just one and that we're rebuilding um, a world that we all want to live in where everyone's needs are taken care of. So, so, that, so from that, let's, so we can maybe move to the, the second uh, step. What's the, so if, what's the first step is, is response. What's the, what's the second? Yeah. So the second, the second step is uh, where many elements of the just recovery come in. Um, the, we've been calling it repair internally. This, the Canadian, um, Center for Policy Alternatives has been calling it this phase of reconstruction. Um, and that's when the, the government starts rolling out a massive economic recovery package. And we have to make sure that in that um, phase, uh, we aren't bailing out corporate executives, that money is going directly to workers and communities, um, and that we're, we're creating resilience for future crises. Um, something I've been, I've been finding helpful when thinking about this phase is, so if we think about Occupy, it happened after the 2008 financial bailout um, handed money to big corporations. And if we think about the Arab Spring, that happened after um, a massive drought brought food insecurity across the Middle East. Even back in 1919, um, there, were, there were mass uprisings um, after the, the Spanish flu pandemic um, when governments didn't respond to, the meet, uh, to, to meeting the needs of people. And so there's there's always this phase after a crisis where the emergency response period is over, immediate needs have been met, and then we're at a fork in the road where we have to choose between austerity um, and 
and making the the world a better place where people are taken care of, um, where public health is protected, where uh, you know so, there's solidarity. And I think for us in this particular moment, where we've built resilience for the climate crisis, so we have to prepare for that phase. We have to we have to be prepared for um, you know potential sweeping austerity measures that that we need to fight. Like we can't let up. It isn't just about the immediate emergency response. Right, right. Um, and and so, so that's the second phase, and that sort of comes right. And, that, and so that that's when the, the 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 packages are being built up, and and the response beyond. And it seems to me that's the moment when uh, when say the you would be really pushing for the campaign for things like a just recovery to get that to be a part of or the entire response too. Right. That's that's sort of that. Is, is that where that the just recovery would come into? Yeah, I think I mean, we have to start calling for it now, too, because the choices that we're making today are shaping um, our society, our economy, our climate for decades to come. So there there are decisions the government is making now uh, where um, they're putting money in the hands of uh, corporate leaders instead of the hands of people. Like those are things we have to pay attention to because they put us on a path. Um, but yeah, fundamentally, it's like big picture. Um, we're at a fork in the road. We're making choices now, and they are either going to take us down an unjust path that empowers authoritarians, cuts social services because we're in so much debt once we've come out of this. Um, it totally ignores the fact that we're in the middle of the climate emergency. Like we have to remember that in the middle of all this, they're still spending billions of dollars to keep building the Trans Mountain Pipeline, right? <laughs> Yeah. Um, so, so that's one path. There's this path of injustice where we're making things a lot worse and these yeah. crises are compounding themselves. And then there's like, there's the just path where there's decent, well-paying work for everybody. Um, corporate power is in check. We're supporting people. We're building resilience for the crisis. Yeah. Um, okay. So, so let, then let's, let's, let's move on to, uh, to a just recovery. Sure. So we're in this moment where choices in response to the COVID-19 pandemic are being made that are going to shape the world that we live in for decades to come. Um, and decision makers are taking steps uh, to think about immediate relief. Um, they're also thinking about long-term recovery. And so when they're thinking about long-term recovery, what we're saying is that it's really important that they consider um, not just the pandemic, but also the interrelated crises of wealth inequality, of racism, um, the climate crisis, those were in place long before COVID-19 and they're at risk now of being intensified. And so uh, the idea of a just recovery is, is just that, put, taking into account the multiple crises that we're facing and uh, choosing to, to go down a path that um, ensures people are taken care of, um, puts people's health first, provides economic relief directly to people, um, helps workers and communities instead of corporate executives, creates resilience for future crises, including the climate crisis, and builds solidarity and community across borders. So one way that people can get involved with that is by going to 350.org slash just dash recovery. There's also uh, a group of people who are working on a Canada-specific version of those principles. Those five principles that I shared are um, have been adopted by hundreds and hundreds of organizations around the world um, and are kind of the foundation for a lot of campaigning that's happening right now. My take, and I'd be interested to know your position, is I sort of had this belief that the next big crisis or, or crash was, was going to be related to oil 
and and was going to and, and the response to that crash would be the determinant of whether or not we basically were able to meet climate change crises uh, in any in any real way. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Also, like measures that were totally unthinkable weeks ago are being taken to contain this virus. The everything that we've heard for so long on climate, we can't afford it. It's just not possible. Like suddenly, money is appearing out of thin air to contain COVID-19 and proving that it is possible to transform our economy to meet a crisis and to take care of people while we do it. So uh, there, are, there are immediate measures that are being taken. I think some people are considering them an emergen- like emergency measures. One of the big fights ahead of us is going to be trying to make some of those measures permanent. Mm. Um, and, and yeah, the, the, like expanding our political imagination there's, there's something happening here that is expanding our political imagination. Like if, if just a few weeks ago you had said schools would be closed, um, people, every, like almost everybody would be working from home, it would be very clear to us who the essential workers are in society and uh, people would agree that they're not getting paid enough. Like those are, those are things that were unthinkable just weeks ago. Yeah, or that the companies that literally fought against 15 for Fairness would suddenly find the money to pay all of them, you know, and give them, a, everyone, a, you know, like the law was $2 a raise and it's like that, like still not enough, but but suddenly you have the money. Like it's just, you know, it's yeah. like you didn't before, now you do. Yeah, yeah. And it's going to be really important that when we're looking at um, the the reconstruction and repair phase, we're thinking about how to be brave because that that is going to be what fuels whether we're actually able to transform our economy to meet the climate crisis. Right. Um, and, and so then what's what's the third phase? We what's the third what's the third step? The third phase, transformation. I mean, yeah. I kind of think <laughs> uh, respond, repair, rebuild. Um, the third I, I think of the third phase as the Green New Deal. Um, that 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 is the response to this moment. Um, an economy where uh, the the work of taking care of each other is most valued. Mm. Um, everybody who's uh, who's on the front lines right now, um, having well paid, decent jobs, um, creating new jobs that fuel this transition away from um, the climate crisis, which frankly makes pandemics worse. Um, that that kind of a, a moment for dreaming big, transformative change, um, tackling inequality, racism, the climate crisis all at once through a, a massive stimulus package. Like we're going to need a massive stimulus package once um, this is over. Uh, and if that stimulus package is a Green New Deal, then we'll be on the path uh, to building um, a, a, just, um, a just planet. Like the, the pandemic is transforming our society already, right? When there's, there's no normal, we aren't going back to normal after this. Right. And so it, it's, we're thinking about that, like the kind of world that we want to build and live in for, for years to come. Yeah, and you, when you're hearing politicians use terminology like they are looking at things like the New Deal. Like yeah. didn't, I think McKenna came out and said that, that was a, or, or, or um, like, yeah. was it McKenna? Um, I, think, I think there was a piece about how she was reading about the New Deal. Yeah. And so you're, and so clearly there are people who are out there thinking like I, about that kind of scale. And I, I remember even 
like the what's amazing to me is the is the Bernie Sanders Green New Deal, which was six trillion dollars, and everyone was like, "That's way too expensive." And then you know, and then within weeks of everyone saying it's way too expensive, suddenly they find you know two trillion, which can then be which can which many people are calling a more even higher bailout because of the ways the money can be sort of multiplied. Yeah. Um, immediately like the, the fed suddenly finds trillions of dollars to throw into the into the into the garbage fire of the tanking stock market so so people listeners have heard this now um and want to get involved in some way um uh is there how do they get involved what's the what what are what are some opportunities for them to get involved in small ways big ways or any way at all there are a few things you can do first off sign on to the principles for a just recovery so you can do that globally at 350.org slash just dash recovery. If you want to get involved at a hyper local level, um, you can create a neighborhood pod and there's actually a toolkit to do that. So uh, this is a bit.ly link because it's just a Google doc, but bit.ly slash pod dash how to. And what's cool about that guide is that um, you can, it links out to a map of all the neighborhood pods across the country. And so if there's already one on your street or at your building, um, you can find the contact information of the organizer so you can get involved. And if you want to start your own, um, it's a very simple process to do that. Uh, there are also tons and tons of mutual aid networks across the country. So there's a Google doc that's aggregated a bunch of them. Um, it's also bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y slash mutual dash aid dash dash Canada. And then if you want to start um, organizing politically, uh, the just recovery principles are a good start. So you can go to 350.org slash just dash recovery. Um, and those five, five principles are putting people's health first, no exceptions, providing economic relief directly to the people, helping our workers and communities, not corporate executives, creating resilience for future crises, and building solidarity and community across borders. Sweet. Thank you so much. Um, I'm going to throw out a question here, which if you can't think of an answer to, you we can just cut <laughs> previously. Uh, but if you can't think of an answer to, I think it would be a great way to end, um, which is uh, in the past few, uh, few weeks, has there been something that you found truly inspiring? Now, has there been a person or a response or a particular moment uh, that you've sort of been struck by uh, and, and that gives you sort of hope for even in that one moment or, or for the future? There, like, there are so many things. Just the, like... I'll take, like, eight if you want yeah. to have lists. I can just make the rest of the show just you having lists of inspiring you know, things. Things are inspiring me? It'd be better, honestly, it'd be a bit more, probably better content than I'm going to create in two days, so... Just, like... <laughs> All, all of the acts of kindness and solidarity, like seeing seeing posts of notes, peoples have dropped peoples that one sip of beer, man. <laughs> um, yeah, there have been tons and tons of acts of kindness and solidarity and just humanity, like seeing seeing the notes that people have dropped off uh, in their buildings and on their streets, reading those. Um, I, I posted a note that I dropped off on my street in, in like mid March 
Um, and a lot of people responded with messages about how they had done the same thing and starting to talk to people and realize we were having a shared experience and then connecting them to each other. Like that has just been really meaningful. Um, the, what else has been meaningful? Everything just sounds so cliche. Like going for a walk and seeing all the rainbows in the in people's windows right. where people are like setting up scavenger hunts for kids. To, yeah. Like that's that's really sweet. Um and actually I just saw like right before this this interview, um I saw a video that Justice for Janitors put out and it was so inspiring. Um it it, like it's about how p the pandemic is showing that essential workers have been invisible for so long um, and, and advocating for fair pay and safe working conditions for all workers across the country. But the, the video was incredible. Um, and there are a lot of, there are a lot of groups who are campaigning for the first time um, who are be, like, I don't know, like finding their voices through shared experiences and, like finding ways to express themselves, even things like being on a Zoom call and uh, having like everybody upping their background game <laughs> or like the Zoom dance parties. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. There's like, I feel like I'm just listing off all sorts of miscellaneous things. But well, uh, that, that's sort of what I asked for, you know, just like a list yeah. of like the like, because I, I, I know there's a, I, I asked that in part just because we you don't see as much now right like you're just like yes yeah. not outside and so it's hard to know like the, the the few moments where you realize that like someone is out there like you know like i was i was in right as i was closing down the other space i was uh a guy the guy showed up and and gave me one of those all, we're in this thing we're all in this together posters that that he had made and he was just going around giving them signs up so like if you walk downtown toronto you'll see these posters all throughout the, throughout, um, throughout downtown Toronto. It was just this one artist who decided that he wanted to do it. Um, and, and it's like, it's, it's funny that you were you, you, like, because maybe it's because we're being trained right now to think that everyone has to stay six feet away. So everyone becomes a threat in like a very odd way. Like, that the moments where someone where where people are still obviously like nice human beings that exist out in the world is a bit remarkable a little bit because like everyone's trying to be both like respectful but also like distant. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Uh, it's just like I, I find the I find the the, the like you the moments of humanity being being really nice. Yeah, me too. I did. I, I think just because I by virtue of the fact that I was one of the first people to post a note online that I gave out to my neighbors. I did a whole bunch of interviews with people like in mid-March about organizing your community to take care of each other. Right. And people, people kept being like, but what like possessed you <laughs> to do that? And I don't know. I, I don't know if it's because like as an organizer, that has like done some things at scale. I, I'm like trained to think about how, like if I do something and I show that I've done it, it, it might make it easier for other people to do that. I don't know. Right. 
Right. But I just, I just remember like being so close to not dropping off a note to my neighbors because I was worried that I couldn't craft the perfect letter. Mm. And then I did. And then I came home and was like, well, if, if I just put this online, it will be easier for if somebody else is in that exact same situation where they're not sure that they can do this or they don't know where to start. If they see this as a template, maybe it will make it easier for them to do that. Um, and it totally took off. Uh, and I, I think it's just, it was just the power of making something visible. Right. Um, and I think there's a role to play right now to make things visible and to draw connections between everything from individual actions to entire movements. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. Um, and yeah, yeah, I love that question. What possessed you to do it? Or like, what, <laughs> like, what, like, what, like, what, what, what? I mean, really what possessed me was everyone was out there hoarding toilet paper and I was right. like, it does not need to be this way. <laughs> we don't need that, that's a beleaguered point for sure but like i never understood the whole like that's the thing like no one said the toilet paper industry was go, had bad supply chains like we're gonna get more yeah i i think um, it's just but, but i think it's human nature to see someone doing something and to replicate it right so if you see someone hoarding toilet paper like it, it's happened to me i've been in the store and i've seen people hoarding toilet paper and i've been like should i right yeah, oh, totally. Yeah, I, like, yeah, definitely. It definitely led to everyone considering that question. And what's interesting is the opposite is true too, though. Yeah. You, you post a note uh, that you showed your neighbor. Everyone asks the same question: Should I? Yeah. You know? um, well, that is honestly a very empowering way to end this conversation. Uh, with the idea that um, all you need to do to change uh, to change your at least immediate environment is to is to take one step and then let make it easier for anyone else to do it, and and you never know how far it will go. Yeah. Yeah. You're, oh, there's another beautiful quote about how your job isn't to change the entire world, but just to change what's within your reach. Mm. That is a nice quote. Ours is not the task of fixing the entire world all at once, but of stretching out to mend the part of the world that is within our reach. Any small, calm thing that one soul can do to help another soul to assist some portion of this poor suffering world will help immensely. It is not given to us to know which acts or by whom will cause the critical mass to tip toward an enduring good. What is needed for dramatic change is an accumulation of acts, adding, adding to, adding more, continuing. We know that it does not take everyone on earth to bring justice and peace, but only a small determined group who will not give up during the first, second, or hundredth gale. Clarissa Pincola Estes. Wow. Uh, well, thank you so much uh, for that quote and for the conversation. Uh, we'll have you back on uh, when uh, when the Canadian principles are released, so we can talk more about them and and how to move forward in this fight. Uh, thank you for all of your work, Amara, um, and we'll be chatting soon. Uh, Amara Prasan from 3 org. Thank you so much, and have a wonderful day. Thank you.